Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you from down here now. I hope you have your Bible with you, and if you do, that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I encourage you to scoot close to someone who does have a Bible, so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can download an app and uh, turn to 1 Peter in that, or there are Bibles in the pews in front of you this week that haven't been there in a while. You can grab one of those. In fact, if you don't have a Bible at all, take that thing home with you, consider it our gift to you, read it, devour it, savor it, drink it like pure milk, right? Pure milk of the word. Last week, we covered more ground than we are used to covering in this study of 1 Peter. It was a lot. It was a lot for you. It was a lot for me. But we covered that much ground because Peter basically said the same thing twice. He basically laid out his argument in principle, and then he reinforced that principle with citations from the Old Testament. You may remember we saw these seven big ideas, stated, then restated, and supported from Old Testament texts. Here are the seven big concepts. Number one, Jesus is a living stone. Number two, Jesus has been rejected by man. Number three, Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Number four, when we come to Jesus in faith, we are united with him. And it is that union with him that is illustrated in baptism in many ways. Number five, in him we are brought together as a spiritual house, the community of faith. Number six, in him we are a royal priesthood. And number seven, as a priesthood, through him we offer sacrifices to God. I asked you this question in application right off the bat. I said, have you come to Jesus? Have you come to him as to a living stone? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, why not? Why not today? Why not turn from your sins today and put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If so, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then it is important to remember who you are. Who you are in Christ. You are who God says you are. And in the text last week, he said you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And even if the world says something totally different about who you are, you are who God says you are in Christ if you are his. And as his people, we are to proclaim his excellencies. We proclaim his excellencies in worship unto him. Basically, worship is about telling God how excellent he is, how great he is. And he never, he never gets tired of hearing how great he is because he is the greatest one, right? He is the most excellent one. We also proclaim his excellencies in evangelism as we tell of his excellencies to our neighbors. And as Laura mentioned one of the applications from last week is our worship is evangelism. Like as we proclaim excellencies unto the Father in the midst of unbelievers, they will see us worshiping him and perhaps be drawn in. Worship is in many ways evangelism. This week, in the text of 1 Peter, we come to a really important place in the structure of the letter. After reminding us of who we are as God's people, Peter is going to give us some very practical instruction really practical instruction about how we live as God's people in the world, how we live as God's people among unbelievers, how we live as God's people in hostile territory. Scott McKnight said this of the two verses we'll look at today. He says, this is the pivotal passage in 1 Peter. Some have found, it, some have found in it a summing up of what has gone before and the thematic statement of the ethical exhortations that will follow. What we're going to see today 
in verses 11 and 12 will be the most general statement that we're going to see over the next several weeks. What we'll see today is really the foundation, and Peter is going to apply these principles more specifically over the next few weeks, namely to our relationship with governing authorities. Next week, that should be interesting. You're going to want to come back for that. Number two, to our relationships at work. What about our bosses? What about employees? How, do, how does that work? That's one of the ways we'll apply these truths from the text. And what about our relationships at home? What about husbands and wives? What about children and parents? How is all of this supposed to work out? That's where we're going. But today we're going to lay the foundation. So to understand those specifics rightly, we have to have the basic principle clearly established. And so that's what we're going to labor toward today. We're going to work hard to make sure the foundation for these very specific applications is crystal clear in our minds and in our hearts today because it is crystal clear in the text that we'll look at. So read it with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is God's word. I pray that you'll receive it as God's word. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you remind us today, through your word, of who we are, who you have made us to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And would you help us to think rightly about this place in which we live. Show us that this is not our home, that we are strangers and aliens because we are citizens of heaven. Would you teach us how to live here, fighting sin, pursuing holiness with zeal and with passion. And as our neighbors see us living this way, oh, we want them to glorify you we want them to turn from the futile ways of this world and trust in Christ alone. We want you to save them. And we know that you have designed to use us in the process. So let it be so, we pray for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name and we pray for his sake. Amen. Amen. I want you to notice the very first word of verse 11. It's highly significant. It says, beloved. This is super important. Some translations render that word, dear friends. And in doing so, these translations emphasize Peter's affection for his audience. And, and indeed, that is part of what's going on in the text. It's actually an important part of what's going on in the text. Peter loves these people, and it is his love for them that inspires and informs his directions to them. He's going to call them in this text and in the weeks ahead to difficult actions. He's going to call them to countercultural and costly obedience. And he's going to do it because he loves them. But I think there's something much bigger going on than Peter's affection for his readers in the word beloved. Remember, he has just told them who they are in Christ. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into marvelous light, not a people who are now a people, not received mercy, who have now received mercy. And he hasn't just told them of these kind of things last week in the text that we look at. In fact, he's been telling them this from the beginning of the letter. If you remember back at the very beginning of the letter in verse 2 of chapter 1, he calls them chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the very next verse, he refers first to them as having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for them. 
He says that they are protected by, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he refers to them as obedient children. Peter has constantly been affirming who they are in Christ. And here, in many ways, Peter sums all that up by calling them beloved. Beloved. That is who they are. And that is who you are. If you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are the beloved. You are loved by God. You are the objects and the recipients of God's great love in Christ Jesus. Beloved. That's a good place to start, right? <laughs> That's a good reminder of who we are. And we should spend a minute savoring and delighting that. Delighting in it that he has called us beloved. That he loves us. We are not lovely. And yet by his grace, he loves us with great love. He starts out by reminding them who they are. He says, beloved. There are two important things in the next little phrase that I want us to see. I'll deal with the last part first when he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. By calling these people beloved and also aliens and strangers, Peter reminds them of another part of their identity. Actually, because they are beloved by God, they are strangers and aliens in this world. They are the elect. They are the chosen. They are the beloved. And consequently, they are aliens. Consequently, they are strangers. Consequently, they are sojourners. H.B. Charles Jr., a, a really good preacher, says sojourners means to live beside the house. It is to live in a place that is not your home. Exiles is synonymous with sojourners. It is to be a resident alien in a foreign land. He says, beloved, you are also aliens and strangers in this place where you are living. It's the same language we see in Genesis chapter 23, coming out of the mouth of Abraham after Sarah dies. Aliens and strangers. Look at it in Genesis 23 with me. It says, now Sarah lived 127 years these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose before his dead and spoke with the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. There in Genesis chapter 23, Abraham is living in a place that the Lord had promised to give to him. But he did not yet own it. He was living at that time as a stranger and an alien and a sojourner in that land. The land is his, promised to him, promised by God to him, but he doesn't yet possess it. And he adopts the mentality of a stranger and an alien living in that place. Brothers and sisters, we need to nail this down today. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. We live here, that's for sure but we don't belong here. The Bible is constantly teaching us how to live as God's people in a place that is not our home. This place is not our home. We are sojourners and we are exiles because our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. We, need to, we gotta affirm this. It says it in Philippians chapter three. Expressly it says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We are sojourners and we are exiles here because our citizenship is in heaven. We live in this city, but this city is only temporary. And we long, while we live in this temporary city, we long for a lasting city. 
a lasting city that cannot be found here. This is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. It says, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And if you remember a while back in our study of Revelation, we read about that city, that city that is to come, the new Jerusalem that is our home, the new Jerusalem that is our hope. We are strangers and aliens. We are exiles here because that is our home. We don't belong here. We ultimately belong there. And while we're here, we are longing for that place. Friends, we are in this world. No doubt about that. We are in this world. But this place is not our home. This is not where we belong. And we must develop the mindset of strangers and aliens while we are here because our true home, our true home demands our allegiance. And this world does not deserve it. Our true home demands our allegiance, and this world does not deserve it. Nailing this down, this visitor mindset that'll help us when the world hates us. If we nail down that this place is not our home, that we're just strangers passing through, if we nail that down now, it'll help us when this world hates us. When this world turns against us and persecutes us and abuses us, we will be able to say, yeah, that makes perfect sense because I don't belong here. I don't belong here, I belong somewhere else, and so it makes sense that you would hate me. But listen, if we nail this down, it will also help us when this world loves us. When we are embraced by this world and we are tempted to think that this world has everything we want. When we are tempted to think that this world has everything that we need. When we are tempted to think that heaven has come down to earth, we must remember in those moments, this is not our home. Our home is coming, and it is better than we could ever imagine. It is certainly better than we could ever create here, right? Nailing this down, this visitor mentality will help us when the world hates us and it will help us when the world loves us and it will keep us in the right position. The second thing I want you to notice in this bit of the text is Peter's tone as he calls these people to action. He says, I urge you, beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens. Some of your translations say encourage and I think that just weakens the word that's actually there. It's a powerful word, a strong word that's in the text. It means to admonish, to exhort, to entreat, or to beseech. My friend in Sunday school mentioned, it means to beseech. It's more than a mere suggestion. It's more than advice. It is a strong, it is an emotional, and it is authoritative language. Peter says to the beloved, as strangers and aliens... I am commanding you, I am beseeching you, I am directing you with authority to do what? Read on in the text. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, Peter has already spoken about these fleshly lusts, these sinful desires, maybe your translation reads. And we need to acknowledge up front that fleshly desires include but are not limited to sexual desires Sexual sins, sexual temptations. He's already spoken about this in chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, the lusts of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And then basically in chapter 2, in verse 1, he gave a list of what those fleshly lusts look like when they're played out. When he talked about things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. This is not new in chapter 2. He's been laying the foundation to give this call to abstain from fleshly lust from the beginning. Once again, here in this text, he's calling us to holiness. 
And as Laura said, the call here is not just the positional holiness that God has granted to us at conversion, but it is to practical holiness that increases in sanctification as we grow in maturity and in Christ-likeness. It's not just about your position in Christ. It's about your actual life as it's lived out. We are holy. Now let's be holy. We have been delivered from the dominion of those fleshly lusts, so we must abstain from them. These things are not at odds with each other. It only makes sense that those who have died to sin will not keep living in it, that those who have been freed from sin will not keep living in bondage to it. It only makes sense that as we have been delivered, we will live in the freedom that Christ has provided. That's what this call is to. And this is exactly what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 just a minute ago in small group Bible study. Listen, we are receiving God's word, all of us, from a number of different directions at any given time, right? We are receiving God's word from a number of different sources. It's all God's word coming from a bunch of different directions at any given time right? You're receiving it from me as I preach to you. You're receiving it from your Sunday school class as you engage in small group community. You're receiving it from your personal devotional life as you read and study God's word. You're listening to some things on the internet or the radio. You're having conversations with your friends. And brothers and sisters, when, when those multiple sources are speaking the same thing to us about a life of holiness, we got to listen. That's a message that God is speaking with authority and clarity to us, and he won't let us escape it. And when that happens, the enemy hates it. We need to pay attention, but the enemy hates that kind of stuff. And he will counter, listen, he will counter every truth that you're going to hear from God's word today with a lie. He will counter every truth that you hear from God's word today with a lie. If we read in this text that this world is not your home, he will whisper, it could be. You, you, you could make it your home. If you just did this, this, and this, you, it could be home for you. He will whisper lies to counter every truth from God's word. Don't let him win in this moment. In the text, there is this call to abstain from fleshly lusts. But what I really want to draw your attention to is the intensity and the necessity of this abstention. Peter describes it as war. He says, these lusts, these fleshly lusts, wage war against your soul. We heard about this a minute ago in Galatians chapter 5. Look at the first part of that text in verse 16. This is Paul talking. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these, the flesh and the Spirit, are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There is this battle that is going on, right? And Paul, the author of Galatians, knew that battle very well personally. He, he knew about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He knew about times when he wanted to do the right thing, but he didn't do it. And he speaks of it with great transparency in Romans chapter 7. I want you to turn there. This is a long text that I want us to spend a minute in. So if you have your Bible, or you're sitting close to someone who has a Bible, get to Romans chapter 7. And listen to Paul talk about the war personally. This is the best sound. This is the best sound for the preacher. Turning of pages. Romans chapter 7. Start with me in verse 14. Listen to this. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. 
for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, and I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen to that. Somebody needs to say amen to that. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Here's what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, beloved. We must have our eyes open to the war that is within us. We must have our eyes open to the war that is within us. The lusts of the flesh are waging war against our souls. The lusts of the flesh are waging war against our souls, and only a fool would walk around mindlessly while the enemy is waging war against them. When Russia invaded Ukraine, can you imagine the people of Ukraine saying, we're not at war, we love the Russians, as tanks roll in and bombs drop? That's crazy. It really only takes one side to create a war. And in this text, we are learning that the lusts of the flesh are waging war against our souls, whether we like it or not. The lusts of the flesh are waging war against our souls. A war has not only been declared, but is being waged against our souls. So what do we do? We got to fight. We cannot sit back and say, no, there's not really a war. No, there's no war going on. No, there is a war. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 7. Described it, his experience with it in Romans chapter 7. Anticipate it in Galatians chapter 5. These two are at odds with each other. We must fight. How do we fight? How do we fight this battle? Jesus would say, we gouge out our eye and we cut off our hand. Jesus says at one point, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away from you. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. Because it would be better to go to heaven with one eye and one hand than to go to hell with both of them. That's the way he talks about the the aggressiveness of our fight against sin. This is what John Owen talks about in the mortification of sin. When he says, you'll be killing sin or it'll be killing you. You'll be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we must fight. We must fight against our sin. We must be aggressive in our fight against sin. Cutting off our hands, gouging out our eyes, fighting against the lust of the flesh. And one of the best ways we fight against the lust of the flesh is by satisfying our hearts in the things of God so that the desires of the spirit are the controlling impulses of our lives. So that that we taste of the sweetness of God's goodness and the stuff of this world tastes like what it is, garbage. One of the ways we fight against the lust of the flesh is by indulging the lusts of the spirit, by indulging the excellencies of God, by speaking of his glory, by reading about his greatness, by singing his praises. That's one of the ways we fight against the lust of the flesh is we learn to treasure the glory of God. It's a two-pronged approach. 
Sanctification has a two-pronged approach. We kill sin, and we chase the Lord Jesus Christ. We taste of his sweetness, we taste of his greatness, and we tell the world about it. H.B. Charles Jr. talked about this fight, and he said, he said, holiness is not cultivated by seeing how close you can get to temptation without sinning. Friends, that's not holiness, that's foolishness. And yet that's the way we often live our Christian lives. I'm going to get as close as I can to this temptation, but not quite cross the line. That's not a pursuit of holiness. That's a pursuit of destruction in the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that you looked at in Sunday school this morning says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's just stop right there and say, how many times have you gone before the Lord and said, Lord, just show me your will. Lord, just teach me what what is your will for my life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's will for your life, sanctification. Particularly, read on. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. That's the same language in 1 Peter. Like the Gentiles who do not go know God, that's the same language. Chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, Paul goes on and says, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So, brothers and sisters... I'm inviting you to make war. I'm inviting you to make war because war is being made against you. Thanks be to God who has given us a victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Thanks be to God who has given us victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now fight. Now fight. From that place of victory in Christ, you fight sin in your life right now. You fight temptation and you indulge in the glories of God that are found in his word and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make war, because war is being made against you. That's one thing we see in this text. Now, up to this point, the call has been largely negative. Abstain. But now the positive comes forward, right? Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that the Christian life is not just keep away from this, put this to death? But it's do some things. It's positively pursue some things. H.B. Charles Jr., again, he was on this week. He said, sanctification involves pulling weeds and planting flowers. Let's plant some flowers, church. Look what it says in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Peter is using the word Gentiles here in a really interesting way, especially since many scholars believe that the majority of the believers in Jesus, to whom Peter is writing, are from a Gentile background. Basically what Peter is doing here is he's adopting Old Testament language. Old Testament language that distinguishes the people of God from the rest of the world. There have always, only, ever been two kinds of people in the world. The people of God and everyone else. And in the Old Testament, this was described as the Jews and the Gentiles, the descendants of Abraham and everyone else. And now it is believers and unbelievers. Now, much more could be said about Peter using Gentiles here to refer to unbelievers as he addresses these new Christians. But what I want us to consider is this. Which are you? If there have only always ever been two kinds of people in the world, the people of God and everyone else, believers and unbelievers, which are you? Which are you, the people of God or not? The good news, listen, the good news is that God is in the business of making those who were not his people into his people. We just read about that last week. You who were once not a people are now the people of God. It was that exact same language that he used just last week. 
God is in the business of making those who are not his people into his people by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe today's the day that your status changes. Your identity changes by God's grace. Peter has been telling his audience here, the people of God, that they should keep their conduct excellent, honorable, good among the Gentiles, among the unbelieving world. This word that's translated for excellent can also be translated as beautiful or attractive in appearance. Beautiful or attractive in appearance. In other words, Peter is calling these Christian believers to live in a way that is observably different, observably interesting, maybe even attractive to a lost world around them, to their neighbors who do not follow Jesus. Read on. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we learn the purpose. The purpose for the way that we live among the Gentiles. So that, right? That's the word that indicates purpose. We want them to see us. We want them to see us doing good deeds. And we want them to glorify God in the day of visitation. This sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we want. We want to live in such a way that they would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, this is not their default position toward us. Their default position is not to see us doing good deeds and say, glory to God, right? We know that from our own experience, but we also learn it from this text. Their default position toward us, nor toward the Lord, is favor. In fact, it seems clear that they default to slander. They call us evildoers. Why? Because we don't do what they do. Because we're different from them. Peter's going to elaborate on this more in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, when he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For time is already past. The time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Their default position is not to glorify God. Their default position is to slander you. They may be surprised by the way that you live. They may, be call, they may call you evildoers. They may slander you. Yet over time, listen, over time, as we live out our faith, in faithfulness and in holiness, some of them will see that and they'll be drawn in. They will know that we are different in really good ways. They will know that we are different and they will want to know the God who changed our lives because he is the God who can change their lives. Now, clearly, as I talk about this, I think that this is about the conversion of the lost here in verse 12. Some scholars argue differently. They say that the day of visitation is the day of judgment at Christ's return. I think the idea of conversion fits better with this text, the context of this passage, and with Peter's own experience as it's expressed in Acts chapter 15. Look at this. 
I'm going to read from ESV because it translates a word, the same word, the same way in the two texts. He says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, that's the same guy we're talking about. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. See there, the idea of visiting the Gentiles is about their salvation. Peter is saying, I preach to the Gentiles. They believed in Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did. How can we say that they're not believers? Because God visited them and he changed their lives. Here's the point. Beloved, there is a lost world to win. There is a lost world to win. And part of our witness is the way that we live. The Baptist faith and message which is the doctrinal statement of this church, right? It expresses what we believe the Bible says about various things, says this about our witness. It says, it is the duty of every Christian child, every child of God to seek constantly to win the lost to Christ by verbal witness undergirded by a Christian lifestyle and by other methods in harmony with the gospel of Christ. What I want you to see is what we believe about our witness is exactly what Peter is teaching here. That we seek to win the loss by verbal witness, by the bold proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that is undergirded by a Christian lifestyle. And friends, if one of those is missing, we're ruined. If we preach the gospel and live just like the world, they're not going to believe what we say. And if we seek to win the lost, never telling them about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they won't know what to believe. Let's preach. Let's boldly proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. While... We live a life that is marked by beautiful holiness, marked by good deeds. And we will pray in that process that God will call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he will cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. That he will save them and make them his own possession forever and ever, just like he has with us. So there are three things to see from this text today. Number one, if you are in Christ, you are Beloved, you are the beloved. Are you in Christ? That's the question. Do you know that God is holy and just and must punish sin? Do you know that you are a sinner who deserves only God's wrath for all of eternity? Do you know that Christ came to die for sinners, to take their sin upon himself and to suffer the punishment that they deserve? Do you know that Christ died for you and was buried and was raised to life? in victory over sin and death and hell that would keep you captive? Do you know that only Jesus by his death, burial, and resurrection can save you? Do you believe that forgiveness of sins is available through faith in Christ alone? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ? Are you the beloved? If you are, beloved, this place is not your home. This place is not your home. The biblical call is to learn how to live in a place that is not your home. Over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that we are sojourners, we are exiles, because our citizenship is in heaven. We long for that lasting city. All of that is foreshadowed in the children of Israel and the promised land. The biblical call is not to spend all of our energy trying to make this place our home. We can't. It's broken. It's worse than broken. It's cursed and has been since Genesis chapter 3. What we need is a new one. (laughs) A new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, which are promised, promised to come. Only Jesus can make it all right again, and he will make it all right again. 
when he comes back. Beloved, this place is not our home. And Satan is whispering to some of you even now, oh, this is your home. America is different. America is different. America is your home. This is the promised land. Oh, we've got to resist that and adopt the visitor mindset. The visitor mindset that Karen Jobes speaks about. Recognizing that nowhere on this planet, in this age, is our home. We were built for something different than this. We were redeemed for something different than this. That place is our home. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. This place is not our home, and there is a war within. You need to know it because it's serious. This text taught us that it is not a war against our body. It is not a war against our bank account. It's not a war against our family. The war is against our soul. You could get all the health and wealth that the world has to offer and lose your soul. And what will you have gained? There is a war, and it is serious, and you need to know it, and you need to fight. And if you are saying, there's no need for me to fight, the battle has already been won. There's no need for me to fight against my sin. The battle for my sin has already been won. If you say that and you don't fight your sin, my friend, I fear that the opposite is in fact true, that the war has been lost. That sounds super spiritual to say, but it flies in the face of this scripture and for many others. Satan's counter to the reality of the war that is in you that this text speaks about is to say that the war is won, therefore you don't need to fight. The scripture says the war is won. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now fight. Now fight in and through and from the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Beloved, there is a war within and there is a world to win. There's a world to win, so let's be bold and clear in our proclamation of the gospel. Let's be holy and righteous in all of our conduct. Let's be asking ourselves, how much am I like the Gentiles? How much am I different from the Gentiles? Would anyone say I'm a stranger? Would anyone say I'm an alien? Now, Satan's counter to this is, oh, don't worry about them. In fact, they're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get what's coming to them, and the more you live in front of them, it's going to heap up wrath upon them. I think our heart should be for the salvation of our neighbors, not the judgment of our neighbors. I think our heart should be desiring the salvation of the nations, not the judgment of the nations. We should want our friends and our family who don't know Christ to know Christ. It's one of the things I love about Elijah's testimony right off the bat. He's worried about his family. He's worried about them, that maybe they don't know Christ like he knows Christ now. There's a world to win. God has chosen to use us in the process of bringing people to himself. Be faithful witnesses, both in words and in deeds. Let's stand together and pray. And for, for our prayer, as we wrap things up and we get ready to respond, I'm going to use a liturgy from Douglas Kane McKelvey from this book called Every Moment Holy. These, this beautiful collection of prayers that express truth in a beautiful way unto the Lord. And this one's called a battle, a liturgy for one battling a destructive desire. Maybe it's your prayer. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. See if you can lend your amen to this. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine 
take my desires. Let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, oh, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you. Knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then, my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by steady progression. Small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity. And your welcoming arms unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment. Well done. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.